Hi everyone, welcome to Pitt in Hollywood. My name is Ben Asciutto. I'm a film and business student here at the University of Pittsburgh, and throughout my years in college, I have been fascinated about what my career will look like after my time at Pitt is over. I spent the month of June in a study away program called Pitt in Los Angeles, where 15 of us had the chance to sit down with some of the most influential people in the film and entertainment industry, an industry I hope to be a part of after I graduate. These people also happen to be, not from USC, not from NYU or UCLA, but from our alma mater, the University of Pittsburgh. I'm excited to share with you their inspiring stories, which I've compiled into this podcast series. I hope this series will help put into perspective that a career in Hollywood is attainable due to our shared experiences and networks at this great university. My guest today for the sixth episode of this podcast series is Pitt alumna Haley Gerbrich, a graduate of Pitt's class of 2009. Haley is an up-and-coming Hollywood writer climbing the ladder as a writer's assistant in Los Angeles. Haley provides an amazing perspective of someone just beginning to make waves in the industry and what you can do early on to make the most out of your experience as an assistant. Please say hi to Haley. Hi, hi, Haley. How are you? Hey, very good. Nice to meet you, Ben. (laughs) You too. Uh, Thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Um, so just to get started, if you could just introduce yourself, uh, and, you know, talk about where you grew up and and when you, when you came to Pitt and, and what you're up to now. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, so my name is Haley Gergerich. Uh, I am currently a writer's assistant in Los Angeles, but prior to that, let's see, grew up all over the place, mostly a tour of the South and the Midwest. And everybody always asks if it was a military family. No, (laughs) I have no idea why we moved so much, but we did. Um, Pitt, wonderful time. Really glad I ended up there. I actually transferred there from uh, University of Richmond after my freshman year. Um, I came because I'd realized belatedly that I wanted to pursue writing. And Richmond basically had an English program, which was about, you know, literature, (laughs) reading and talking about what we thought the author meant. And I was more interested in the craft of writing and Pitt has a great program. Uh, So I majored in creative nonfiction there. Uh, Loved it. Hope that major still exists. Haven't checked it out. I think it does. (laughs) Good, good. Glad to hear it. Um, Absolutely loved it. Got an internship with Esquire after school um, to try and continue magazine writing. Uh, But it was a terrible time for magazines. I don't know if uh, you've seen magazines around that much since, but I haven't. (laughs) They've been having a sad time, unfortunately. Uh, So after a great four months in New York, I moved to Chicago, uh, got into comedy writing for fun at Second City, and uh, in my day job, got into content marketing. Uh, And that's really kind of where I discovered that video and podcasts were something I really enjoyed. Uh, I was doing it for a a bank client, so it was extremely dry. (laughs) Um, But kind of that combination of learning the technical skills in that day job and meeting people who were writing comedy and making little projects and stuff on the weekends on their own at Second City um, was kind of a great way to sort of figure out how to branch those interests. So um, while I was in Chicago, I ended up Uh, shooting a pilot with some friends um, just on our own because I borrowed (laughs) the video crew from my day job to go shoot something that wasn't a talking head video for a bank. (laughs) They were into it. (laughs) Uh, It was a really great training ground. Um, 
So that kind of, it was such a fun experience that it unfortunately doomed me to want to do this professionally. And uh, that's where it's been since. Mm -hmm. Awesome. How, how was Second City? I mean, I've heard stories and all that, but what was your experience like there? Yeah, I, I loved it. I mean, Second City is such a huge institution and such a like storied one. Um, but it's one of a number of them in Chicago. Like there's the Annoyance Theater, there's IO, which used to be called Improv Olympic. Um, they're, they're just, it's a big comedy town. So everybody worked with everybody, whether or not you were in Second City or somewhere else. But Second City was just a great way to, to meet people and to kind of get a, an education at night <laughs> um, into what it looks like to write sketches, what it looks like to make something. You know, I went through the writing program there and it's uh, six levels that culminate in you writing a show with your classmates um, and staging that show with the people who have gone through the six levels of the improv team. So you're kind of combining your talents there and putting something up. And uh, yeah, I, I really loved it. Awesome. And then, uh, and then you transitioned to, into that, that film program. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So a few years in between, um, I kind of was still working and just sort of saving money, but was knowing that marketing wasn't going to be my final stop. Um, and in the interim, uh, Second City created this one-year intensive film program called the Harold Ramis Film School, uh, named after Harold Ramis, of course. And like he was, uh, I think his wife was really involved in the development of it, um, as well as his producing partner, which was cool. Uh, now it's called the Second City Film School, if anybody's looking for it. <laughs> but uh, it's it's a year-long program that kind of puts you together with a cohort and you take all of your classes together. Um, you do everything. So it's not just like you separate out by who wants to perform, who wants to write, who wants to be behind the camera. Everybody does everything. So you learn just enough about all of it to be dangerous. <laughs> uh, mm. And then you all set out and make final films together. Um, mm. So it's just a really great like collaborative experience and a way to say like, for less money than I would spend on, you know, a major film school, I'm going to give myself a year to really dig into film. Is that the way, is, is that a, a way you would recommend to others like a similar thing if they kind of realize, hey, you know, later on, you know, after their undergrad or, you know, graduate experience, or whatever, um, just to pick up some kind of film program and be a part of it and kind of learn the basics before really diving into that industry? I totally would. I mean, you you'll hear this from everyone. No one has to go to film school to be able to get into this industry. But the thing that, that film school really helps with is, um, well, that dedicated time to focus on making things, but also the, the community, like you meeting people is going to be the number one way that you get jobs out here. Everything is word of mouth in the industry. So, um, yeah, it, it, to me, it felt like kind of the perfect blend of being able to actually take my interest seriously and focus on it and produce some work, but also not bankrupt myself, you know, just so that I could meet a group of people. Um, but honestly, a lot of them that I, you know, went through that program with in Chicago are now out here in LA and we are the first ones we call for jobs and, and when we hear of openings and to help us out on the weekends with our own little projects that we're still doing out here. Awesome. Awesome. And is, uh, does it skew one way? Is it like more comedy writers that are now in LA, that like within this cohort? Or is it is it all over the place in terms of like professions? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, 
Because uh, Harold Ramis Film School is mostly comedy focused, um, everybody that I know is mostly comedy focused, sure. but uh, people who are out here tend to be more interested in narrative and people who went to New York, for example, tend to be more interested in late night. Oh, cool, cool. Um, great, so just to, just to backtrack a little bit, uh, back to your time at Pitt, um, what were some of the things that you were involved in that, that helped like, you know, helped your development and, and finding out what you wanted to do, stuff on campus, off campus, you know? Yeah. Probably the biggest one for sure for me was the Pitt News. Um, I was an editor there and a staff writer prior to that. And I just, I loved it. It was a great way to feel like, um, it was the first time that I'd, I'd been in a situation where I had any kind of credentials, you know? Um, yeah. And it, it's funny, it doesn't need to be big, but just any kind of credential at all that gives you a reason to be able to talk to people um, for whatever you know, you're curious about is so freeing. It's so much easier to say, I'm a reporter with, for the Pit News, can I talk to you about this thing? Than just like, hi, my name's Haley and I, I was just curious. <laughs> Maybe that says more about me, but um, but yeah, I, I just loved the freedom to explore within that organization, and also just like the whole newsroom environment, the camaraderie of that. Um, a lot of my best friends, the people who were my roommates at Pitt, everybody was Pitt News. Mm, cool. And Harry was the one. Yeah. Was the one that connected us. Seems like there is a a little bit of an alumni network to it as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And Harry, Harry just retired. Harry's the greatest uh, news advisor. And um, in while they're trying to figure out how to fill his new position, um, some previous editors in chief have created like a, a an alumni network that are basically on call so that the current staffers who want to be able to ask questions or, you know, get a critique on anything they're writing can send it to anyone who signed up. And I think there's something like 40 alumni who have Wow. And he said they'll do it. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. How how, yeah. how long was he there for? Oh, gosh. I mean, I want to say 20, 25 years. Yeah. I yeah, I think so. Uh, I think I read the article on the Pit News about his retirement. I think, <laughs> it, I think yeah. it was around that time. Um, so did you have any... So obviously, you know, Chicago is a big move and LA is also a big move. And how, how are those transitions for you? Like even even just physically like adjusting to all these new cities. Cause you know, that's, that is a big change. Yeah. It's definitely tough. I mean, especially Los Angeles because uh, it's such a spread out giant city. Um, you really have to be intentional about seeing people, <laughs> you know, everybody drives out here. Um, so you, you really have to kind of make a real effort to keep from feeling isolated. Chicago is a little bit easier because while it's a huge city, it's got incredible public transit. Um, it's pretty walkable. You absolutely can see people all the time very easily just hopping on the train. Uh, this is a little harder. <laughs> You're like, all right, I got to figure out parking. <laughs> I have to figure out the whole thing. Uh, and I'll sit in traffic for 40 minutes. <laughs> so LA's got a little room for improvement there on that front. Um, mm -hmm. But something that I, I didn't even mention that I do think was really useful was... Um, after I finished at uh, Harold Ramis, it was just a year-long program, and I graduated in late 2020. Um, so obviously, we'd gone online, which was a big bummer, but, you know, had to be done. Mm. Uh, so in 2021, um, my sister had worked, she lives in New Mexico, and she had worked on uh, 
the season five of Better Call Saul. And she knew that season six was starting back up and I had just finished this program and I was freelancing. So I was like, all right, I'll come down and visit her and I'll apply and see if I can get onto that production. And if I do, then I'll figure out how to stay in New Mexico. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and I did, and I did, and um, spent a full year down there working on the production. And I think that that kind of accidental luck of spending a year in a smaller film town was mm. very lucky because, uh, you know, the, yes, the crew were, you know, New, New Mexico locals for the most part, but the producers, the writers, everybody above line were all Los Angeles people. Mm. Um, so I made an incredible network of, you know, assistants and their bosses who were based in LA and then moving to LA after that was so much easier because I wasn't coming in cold and it was so much, uh, it, it was just a lot more access than I would have gotten kind of starting in a smaller pond than if I'd gone straight to Los Angeles. So yeah, I recommend that. So your sister was working on the production also. What was her role? So season five, she was uh, the producer's assistant to Bob Odenkirk and Ray Seahorn, who are the lead actors. And season six, I took over that role. <laughs> what was what was that like? It was interesting. Um, I mean, Bob is Bob and Ray are great people. So I got extremely lucky. <laughs> there was not, you know, diva cast behavior as can happen. Um, none of that at all. It was the nicest, most professional cast and crew. I, I Midway through, I was like, wow, this is going to really ruin me for anything else. <laughs> um, but they they were great to work with. And if you're, if you are interested in writing, I would say if you're going to be a cast assistant, assist someone who is a writer performer. Because okay. the great thing about both Bob and Ray was that um, you know, they had me handling their schedules. They had me looking at uh, submissions for them to consider for parts or for things that they were going to produce. Uh, so I, I, it wasn't just like, there was a lot of standing in the desert waiting to see if someone needed an iced tea, but there was also a lot of, you know, actually feeling pretty involved in, in seeing what their lives looked like and the projects they were considering and, and understanding, um, you know, how those things were coming into them and who was involved, which is all really useful when you're trying to get the landscape of the industry figured out. Yeah, and I think that's a great point about uh, the importance of like being an assistant. And um, so I was wondering if maybe you could expand upon that with uh, either your current position or, or positions you've had in the past, because, you know, it's a it seems like a great way to absorb and, and learn the ropes and, and all that. Yeah, I mean, once again, I've been extremely lucky in that I have always been assistance to uh, very generous, uh, like humane, <laughs> normal people. Um, that isn't always the case. There are some egos in this industry, and that can be a, a bad situation. But the great thing about being an assistant is that you, once again, it's that access thing, just like, you know, having the pit news credentials and getting to go extra places because of it. Because I was Bob's assistant, I got to go anywhere Bob was going, you know, um, because I was Ray's assistant, she directed an episode of the season. And so I got to be, you know, a director's assistant for one episode, um, which meant I got to sit in on all of the creative meetings with the department heads and, and kind of shadow what a director would do. Um, so I, I think it's extremely valuable. On top of that, you're also going to meet lots of other assistants and Man, the best way to find jobs and to understand what you're doing 
no one will teach you how to do your job in, in this industry, especially as an assistant, you're often kind of an island by yourself. And everyone expects you to just know how to do it because they're too busy to tell you. Um, and that's where other assistants will absolutely save you. They all get it. They all want you to succeed because they need your help to get their bosses in touch with your boss. Um, so the assistant network is, is key and robust and will save your life. <laughs> mm. What what are some of the, you know, I don't want to sound too cliche, but like what, what are some of the, the really important things to keep in mind, like skill wise or things that are important just to remember to do at, like for being an assistant? I mean, I think the most important thing is to be able to to problem solve, to do your best to kind of figure out, try and solve an, a question for yourself as well and as far as you can. And then when you can't, when you're really not sure, ask, <laughs> because it's kind of like, it can be weirdly high stakes. You know, you CC the wrong person on an email and all of a sudden you've created <laughs> a terrible situation for your boss, yourself and everyone else on the project. Uh, and that's just stuff that you can't know until you know it. So. It's it's a weird combination of of doing your best to try and be like a, a self starter who can um, be proactive and figure things out, but also be aware of when it's time to pull someone aside, ask a question, and just get that clarity before you create a problem, which is really hard to do. But uh, once again, assistance can be a, a big key to that because it's a lot easier to ask them. They get it. They're right there with you, and they want to help. Did you feel like you were on call? like 24-7 almost, because I know that's been a thing where it's like difficult to deal with all the things you have to deal with, I guess, all the time. In Albuquerque, yes. Um, and I think I was okay with that partly because, you know, I, I was really just there to do that job. You know, it wasn't like I had an existing life and network and, and also it was 2021, like we were all in masks on set all the time, being tested constantly. Um, so I really was not trying to go out or see people. <laughs> so um, it was a, a unique time where it felt fine to absolutely live and breathe the job. Um, yeah, it can get that way for sure. Uh, something that is always tricky to figure out is um, how you get paid on things. So as an assistant or an hourly employee, especially if you're not in the union, um, you can and should ask when you're told the rate for something, if there is an, a weekly hour guarantee. So most jobs will be like, this is your salary and it's 60 hours guaranteed. And that way, you know, that you can actually bill for 60 hours, whether or not you work 60 hours. Mm -hmm. Um, they can't tell you that outright because obviously the studio doesn't want to put it in those terms, but that is what is meant by an hourly guarantee. And yeah. uh, it's one of those things you need to know to ask for because they won't necessarily volunteer it. Yeah, that's that's a great tip um, in a way of dealing with that. To follow up, um, I wanted to ask you, how can you maybe, I don't know if you have maybe a personal example of this or just, just generally speaking, like move from one assistant role to the next one. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's much more than just a job listing on a website, you know? Yeah, yeah. Copies are a real thing. I know networking can be very scary and intimidating. Um, but the great thing about LA, and I suspect New York as well, is that people are just really used to it. They they know you need to do it, and they need to do it too. So it's 
it should ease your mind a little bit that if you ask somebody to get a coffee, they get it, they're into it. <laughs> um, yeah, I did. I did a zillion coffees <laughs> as soon as I got out here, uh, just as often as I could schedule them. Um, you want to check in with people, but you also want to, you know, when you're having those coffees with people, ask them if there are any resources that they find useful that they could recommend. Uh, one of the best ones that's been recommended to me out here is on Discord. It's uh, the NHA Discord for New Hollywood Association. Um, and it's just a giant collective of assistants and early career people who are, you know, sharing information, um, helping each other find email addresses for whoever their boss wants to contact, uh, helping each other find jobs. Often if you are an assistant and you're being promoted, the first place you'll post your listing to find your replacement is on a job board like that. Um, so yeah, that's been a hugely helpful resource and something that I only found by having a coffee with someone and asking them that question. Yeah, that's a great. I had to write it down because that's a great. That's a great uh, resource. Yeah, a great resource to know. And I think a lot of people, and this is something like I had to overcome also, but like um, early on, uh, is just being able to to like talk to people. You know what I mean? Like going out mm -hmm. and being uh, you know sociable and personable and all and being conversational because. It's it's pretty much what's required. Like in order to find out new opportunities, you have to kind of take that step. So I don't know. Maybe you could stress the importance of that. I, I guess you kind of did already, but if anything, no, I I do totally agree with you though. And it is really hard because I, in this moment, because I feel like for so long there's been this feeling of it's more, it's it's safer, it's more appropriate, it's more moral to not be meeting people. You know, we were all trying to keep each other safe, so everybody was staying in, but. I do feel like the the tide has shifted, um, especially as of 2023, where you know people are starting to feel like, okay, I really need to be talking to people. Human interaction is important and nice, <laughs> and uh, there's a real appetite for it. And and it is, it's so important. Um, it's also really good to follow up with people, like not you know, <laughs> not every week, but you know, if you if say you and I make this connection, and then. I, we follow each other on Instagram or something. And I see six months from now that you've got a short film up and I check it out and then maybe I'll shoot you a note and be like, Ben, that was so cool. You know, mm -hmm. it's just that kind of thing where you're making genuine points of contact with someone um, whose work you admire or, you know, whose network you're sort of a part of. It keeps you on their radar in a way that, uh, that is helpful and, and keeps you top of mind so that when they think of opportunities, they think of you. Yeah, no, that's great. And for, I guess the application, oh, you know, whatever, moving on to the next job and finding the next opportunity, how formal has like the onboarding of that been? Like, has it been like really interviews? Has it been just, I don't know, maybe getting coffee with someone and say, hey, you're a good fit for this? Or, you know, I'm sure it varies also. It does vary. It's also been extremely fast. Like uh, the last two, um, you know, like writer's assistant, showrunner's assistant jobs that I've gotten have been like, I did a Zoom interview on a Friday and then I got a call that I got the job on a Saturday and they asked if I could start working Sunday. You know, like it's it's that kind of thing. Um, oh my it's, god. Yeah. It's very it's very quick. Uh I think that's more normal for, you know, support staff people because there's so much involved in assembling a room that you're kind of the last piece of the puzzle. Uh so they're like, we're starting immediately. Can you be there? Um 
which is great, but also super frustrating because you feel like you can't plan things very well. Uh, it's the kind of thing where you send along your resume. Ideally, if you're sending it to a friend or someone that you know can flag it for their boss, you're letting them know, like, hey, here's here's something recent that you know might, might make sense to highlight. Um, it's been Zoom interviews, and then uh, it's often like you'll get a pre-interview with the assistant, and then if they like you, they'll you know, pass you along to their boss and then you'll do a Zoom interview with the, their boss. And uh, that's that. As far as onboarding, basically none. <laughs> um, the studio would reach out to you with uh, what's called start work paperwork, which is, you know, your time card and, and the basics of whatever applications they want to get you set up on. But um, at least in support staff world, you kind of are a little bit of an island. So it'll be on you to just figure out how to do that. And there again, that's a good time to ask your friends and network like, Hey, I just got this gig. It's my first time doing this kind of thing. Can I buy you a cup of coffee over the weekend? And you can tell me how you do it. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's how you learn. Yeah, totally. Um, and I've been meaning to ask also, like, I don't know, maybe you could touch upon the position, you, the position you have now, but what is, what is the, the day to day look like? What, what kind of responsibilities do you have? I know it probably varies a lot depending on the day, but just generally. Well, with writer's assistant, um, basically you are the note taker in the room. So um, you show up to the writer's room, you've got your computer, <laughs> your power cord, and sometimes your little standing desk situation, if you're really a pro. <laughs> and uh, you are the stenographer for the day. So the room will sit around and they will, initially the way it starts is they kind of blue sky. So they've, you know, they've got an idea for what the show is, because that's what the showrunner has sold this pitch for what it can be. Um, but once they have the room assembled, it's a little bit like, and nothing's set in stone. So you're talking about what you'd like to see in this show, what you, you know, different storylines you'd like to see with the characters who have been established. Um, it's all just kind of loose freewheeling conversation. Uh, typically writer's rooms will run from about 10 a.m. to 6 p.m with uh, lunch for an hour in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, so you are taking notes that whole time. And uh, then at the end of the day, it's your job to go through and um, organize those notes. So, you know, obviously in a freewheeling conversation, people are jumping from topic to topic. You are trying to then at the end of the day, introduce some kind of structure so that the room will end up with uh, a document that they can refer to. And those will get more and more structured as things get more and more locked down onto, you know, index cards. And now we figured out the outline and now we figured out what, you know, episode one will be. It'll get more and more like clearly structured. Um, but your goal is to really create like the most helpful uh, documentation of the discussion so that when a writer goes off to write a script, they can refer back to your notes and remember like where the room landed and why. Of it all, I know we talked about it. You know, you don't have to go into much detail about what you're up to now, but like, there's a certain amount of weeks, a certain amount of things mm. that have to get done in relation to the studio you're working with. Like, so if you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. Yeah, and that's a that's an interesting uh, question for right now because this is sort of a more unusual moment than <laughs> things are different now than they used to be even five years ago as far as how TV and movies are made, um, TV especially. Everything seems to be more, you're structured for streamers and um, more in line with shorter orders. So eight episode series or 12 episode series rather than 
the typical broadcast model, you know, like a friend's, which would be 23. So um, because of that, there's been this development of mini rooms. And that means that you have uh, X amount of weeks, depending on how many episodes you're doing and depending on how much the studio will fund for just the writers to sit there and figure out the show and produce those scripts. Um, in the past, if you were, or even now, if you're on a broadcast uh, show, like you know an ABC and NBC kind of show um, that do have those 23 episode orders, you'll be writing and you'll be ahead of obviously what's being produced, but production will be happening in the background. So maybe, you know, the writer's room gets three or four scripts done and they'll start shooting those while you're working on scripts five through eight and so on. Um, that kind of simultaneous work doesn't really happen with mini rooms, which in some ways is nice because you can be really focused on the writing and the showrunner doesn't have to be split brained about, you know, supervising the room, but also thinking about what's happening on set. But it can also be tough because it means a lot of writers um, who start out as writers don't get experience on set. Uh, and that can be a hindrance to them later on as they rise the ranks, because if they want to get to the point where they're a showrunner or a story editor or something like that, they really do need to have on set experience. Yeah, I didn't know I didn't know that, that how from the writer's perspective, how important on set is. Um, it makes sense, though. Um, and can you talk a little bit about the the studio side of it? Because I know you know we talked about earlier about the production companies that are also entangled in it all. Um, if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, and this I'm very much still learning, so I'll, I'll just tell you, you know, as far yeah, as I have it figured out. But <laughs> your uh, <laughs> listeners can fact check us here as they know more. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, you you typically have a production company that will be a smaller production company. Um, it's common for actors, for example, to start their own production company so that they can kind of develop projects that they would be interested in starring in. So like Leonardo DiCaprio has his own, like, you know, everybody's got one. And they are looking through scripts and looking at IP, um, whether that's, you know, video games, books, um, magazine articles, whatever it is that they might want to develop. Uh, they're also taking pitches from writers. They're reading people's submissions and hearing writers' pitches for things that they're like, hey, what if Leonardo DiCaprio did my script? You know, here's here's this idea that I think he'd be great in. Uh, so they pick their favorite projects and put them in what's called their slate. Um, and then the producer who is running that small production company will then go out and try and get meetings with bigger production companies like your streamers, like your broadcast networks to try and get them to come on as a producing partner who would be able to fund the actual production of the series or the movie um, and distribute it on their, their platform. Mm. Uh, so it's kind of a combination of like, you've got your first little producing production company producing partner who's sort of your creative champion and helping you, you know, develop it, you as a writer. Uh, and then you're looking to pair yourselves with, a, you know, a bigger, more powerful studio that can actually make it. Yeah, and it seems like it's definitely like a, it's a good pressure to have, I guess, to not like, because you have to, your story that you want to tell in whatever form it is has to be, you know, a good story, I guess, like it has to be appealing yeah. and uh, being able to draw in the larger funding and crew mm -hmm. and all, you know. 
So I guess. Yeah. And it is really hard too, to know, you know, what's going to connect with, with anybody at any given time. <laughs> um, so it, it can be very frustrating, but it's also good, uh, a good experience for writers to have to learn that like you, you can't be too focused on one idea you can't be too myopic you have to constantly kind of be coming up with lots of different things because even in a, a general pitch meeting um people will ask what's your idea you'll pitch them your main thing and they'll be like oh we have something similar to that what else do you have you know so you should have probably three more ready in the queue to be able to talk about yeah that's a good point um and so what what is your goal do you feel like you know, in addition, because I, I do know what your goal is, but like, it, do you, for everyone else, but do you, um, do you see a way to like reach that goal? Is it, does it feel like tangible yet? You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. That's a great question. I, I do want to write. Um, honestly, like being staffed on someone else's show kind of seems like the greatest job you could ever have <laughs> because like I said, the hours are 10 to 6. Yes, you're doing some reading at night and thinking about different characters. And if you're, you know, a good dedicated employee, like absolutely thinking about the show constantly. But that's a really nice lifestyle. Once you're above the assistant level, it pays very well. <laughs> and you just get to a writer's room is the most fun. You are just sitting in there all day talking with people. Everybody's sharing stories about their lives, about their friends and family. And you're just looking for ways that you can kind of imbue all of that into the characters that you're creating to make a story that will be resonant and interesting and, and meaningful. And especially when, as I've been very lucky to have had, it's it's smart, kind groups of people. It's just the best. <laughs> um, so I love that environment. Uh, for myself personally, I, <laughs> I've wanted to show run before I got out here. And now that I've seen that job up close, it's so intense. <laughs> uh, it really shouldn't be just one person's job. It's it's a million jobs. <laughs> and people typically refer to it as uh, the job where you get kicked to death by your dreams. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> still sounds somewhat appealing, maybe because I'm a control freak. Uh, so I, I'd love to try and figure out um, now that I'm getting my bearings and, and have, yeah, have a job that can pay the bills how to try and uh, go about it the DIY route. So things like um, Abby and Alana who created uh, Broad City or the women who created Pen15. Um, you know, they started those as little web series that built their own audience. And then they, as a result, got them the backing to make the show they wanted. Um, I think that route really appeals to me mainly because it means that you start off by making exactly the kind of thing that you want and therefore subsequent jobs that you're getting or offers that are coming up are based on your actual voice. Um, there's nothing wrong, certainly, with trying to just get hired on whoever show, whosever show will take you. That's a great route. <laughs> but it can mean that sometimes you get hired for something that isn't actually what you want. And then you can get pigeonholed for a little while as, you know, like, you're this kind of writer, uh, and maybe you're not. Yeah, and I think that's a theme of what, you know, we've been hearing like through these different interviews and people we've been talking to is definitely to share your own voice and what's personal to you. Cause that often makes the best story. You know, just to wrap things up, I wanted to ask um, if you have any advice for current pit students um, who are maybe hesitant about 
pursuing this this big dream they have for for Hollywood or you know their interest in writing or producing or directing or whatever whatever the case is um what advice do you have for them to kind of take that that leap yeah first of all way to go choosing pit <laughs> loved it <laughs> had a great time there um honestly i think the time that i spent in in chicago and also my short stint in albuquerque were the most accidentally helpful things I did. And the reason I say that is that Chicago had a town, it, it's just so rich in people who wanna pursue comedy and, and so many opportunities to do that in like, you know, a, a very extracurricular kind of way or a professional way that it was a place where there were always people who were interested and available in making things for free, for cheap, um, you know, had some skill, had some resources, were interested in sharing. And spending time in an environment like that where I, I actually got to make things and it was so much easier to make them in, in a small scale DIY way um, was just hugely useful, both for the learning experience and for the portfolio, but also for, um, I guess, the confidence too. Because once you once you go for it in like a Los Angeles or New York or something like that. Um, it just, it's overwhelming how many people in this city are trying to do the exact same thing. And it can really hit you like, oh God, the, the imposter syndrome, syndrome is real. Um, and I think if you've, if you've taken a little time to make things and to experiment and to spend time in a smaller pond like that, uh, that can kind of help make you a, a little a little bit more Teflon about it. <laughs> you know, you're a little less, uh, a less nervous and, a, and more secure in, in what you're here trying to do and your ability to do it. So making things, especially making things for free and for cheap with your friends, helping them with their stuff, not just asking them to help you with yours uh, is really huge. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Um, thanks for all the advice. And I'm sure a lot of people at Pitt, we'll, we'll take it to heart. So really appreciate you coming on. Of course. Hail to Pitt. <laughs> Hail to Pitt. <laughs> and that concludes this episode of Pitt in Hollywood. I hope you all enjoyed this sixth episode. And just as Haley said, take the time to make things and experiment. Thank you all for tuning in. Stay tuned for next month's episode with Pitt alumnus Benjamin Hatmaker, who is a former network post-production coordinator for HBO Max, TNT, TBS, and True TV. Hail to Pitt and see you all soon.